Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. And welcome to episode 0000194 of The Mission. Uh, my name is Daniel James, I'm going to be your host. Um, I'm broadcasting to you tonight from uh, Triple R World Headquarters, which of course is at the end of the 96 line, which of course is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to the elders past and present. And I remind everyone that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, this show, the mission, is about speaking to people, uh, the vast majority of First Nations people, about the issues affecting us, and those issues vary greatly. For instance, in the first half of the show, we could be talking about deaths in custody, and in the second half of the show, we could be talking about cultural flows in the Murray-Darling Basin and everything else in between, just as an example. There's also much to celebrate with our culture. There's so much talent both in the arts, in academia, in law, a whole range of areas that we look to celebrate when we can. But let's not, you know, pussyfoot around here. There's a lot of issues that um, remain unresolved in this country. And we've got to deal with those issues. So in this year of 2023, on top of all those issues that confront us as a community, we have the debate around the voice to Parliament. Now, it's a discussion that needs to be had and it's a decision that needs to be made. But what it does mean is that the debate, just as we saw with the marriage equality debate, is bringing out the worst in the worst people. (laughs) Um, And we're increasingly seeing this sort of racist and violent vitriol as we get close to the path towards the referendum, as it becomes clearer, as it becomes a straighter road, some of those voices are getting louder. If you want to visit social media, you can see any one of our leaders who are either proponents or opponents of the voice get attacked on a daily basis in the most disgusting ways. Now, it's not as bad as being on the end of that, but witnessing that on a daily basis, sometimes by the hour, is a difficult thing for a lot of First Nations people to do around the country. It's traumatic, it affects our day, and it's happening day in, day out, and it's getting worse. Um, Also, when you turn up to places, no matter whether it's a social function or some sort of professional engagement, you're constantly being asked about your views on The Voice. And some of us haven't made up our mind about that. Some of us are very clear about that. Some of us um, don't feel like sharing that information with particular people. Um, Some of us are cautious about the motives of the person asking that question. And sometimes it feels like there isn't a right answer. And similarly, when we get asked around The Voice and how it affects things like What's been happening in Alice Springs over the last few months? We're supposed to come up with some sort of thesis as to how the voice would impact on issues like the the crime wave that has been happening in Alice Springs um, since the start of summer, really. 
Um, we don't necessarily have those answers and we don't necessarily like being asked those questions. Similarly, we get asked a lot about the ins and outs and treaty and the sequencing around the voice. We have people in the Australian Parliament that believe that treaty should, be, should come first before the voice and there are a whole range of other people and bodies that think that the voice should come first before treaty. Um, we're not necessarily constitutional lawyers. We don't have all the answers and sometimes it just makes us feel uncomfortable. And you've got to take into account what sort of day we may have been having and what we have witnessed and what we are dealing with as First Nations people. Also, the question around, well, what's going to happen if the referendum fails? Well, there's going to be a lot of heartbroken people around the place, but we don't know what it's going to mean for the thing called, in quotes, reconciliation. Um, Some of us will be devastated, some of us will be pleased. But why I'm mentioning all this is because it's just an added burden on what we already have to endure as First Nations people. Some of us are luckier than others. I'm a very lucky person. I live a really, hopefully, fulfilling and and good lifestyle. But there are many of us who are just a little bit jaded by it all and are just struggling to get through life as we go through it. So all I ask is the next time you come across a First Nations people, um, perhaps talk about anything else other than the referendum. By all means, talk about it if that First Nations person raises it and wants to talk about it. Go for your life. Knock yourselves out. But maybe just, you know, buy that person a drink, a cup of coffee, glass of wine, give them their land back, do whatever you think you need to do to make them comfortable because it's going to be a long, hard slog. The referendum vote is going to be between, be between October and December of this year. That's a lot of days and nights between here and then and there's going to be a lot of angst and a lot of violence directed at Aboriginal people but hopefully not too much lateral violence. Uh, we have a great show coming up for you this evening. Um, shortly we'll be joined by Alan Brown. It's the 50th anniversary of the establishment of the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service which is an amazing piece of history and a service that has provided well life-saving care to tens of thousands of uh, Aboriginal people in this city over its journey. And in the second half of the show, we're going to be joined by a fellow called uh, Damien Bartholomew, who is the chair of the Queensland Law Society um, Children's Law Committee. Um, You may have seen that the uh, Queensland government is looking to propose what many are calling, and I am calling, very draconian laws that are aimed at uh, youth crime. So we'll unpick that a little bit. You're listening to The Mission on 102.73 RFM, or maybe you're listening to us on the National Indigenous Radio Service. Wherever you are, welcome. Now, this year marks the 50th anniversary of the establishment of the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service. It was the second Aboriginal medical service, as it was known in those days, in the country after Redfern. The Victorian Aboriginal Health Service first came about from a women's group who used to give out blankets to the Kuru community in the local area. Uh, VARS was then formally established in 1974 in a shopfront building in Gertrude Street, and there it stayed in Gertrude Street in a couple of locations up and down the Strip, until the place we're most familiar with, the building in Nicholson Street, opened way back in 1992. 
Now, VARS is spread across multiple locations and provides a range of services across Melbourne for MOB. To tell us about the 50th anniversary and the story of VARS is someone that has been involved with the health service in various capacities for a very long time now. Alan Brown is a Gunditjamara man with a life dedicated to improving the health and well-being of his people in various roles, and he is currently the VARS Health Ambassador. I'm very pleased to say that he's in the studio with me now. Alan, welcome to the mission. Thank you very much. Very good to have you here. Very good to have a studio guest, I must say. Um, you, you said you were saying earlier oh, you've driven past this place probably a million times. Yeah, I have, mate. Um, up and down Nicholson Street. I'm, I live in Preston on yeah. the way home from Fitzroy. Well, there I you often go. wondered what it looked like inside and suitably impressed. Well, it's palatial, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> um, it seems like only um, last week that Vars was celebrating its 40th anniversary. Yeah, mate, it, it, it does go quick. Um, and quite often, like, for the people that are working at the coalface, um, the staff in, in particular, um, it does tend to go quick. You know, lots of people in and out of our doors, thousands of episodes of care uh, per year, lots of patients, lots of activities. Time flies. It certainly does. Um, I think I can even remember the 30th anniversary. I think it was like there was a celebration at uh, Melbourne Town Hall or something. Yeah, mate, Vars is famous for its celebrations. <laughs> Um, it's one of the really good things about the great organisation, I'd say. Troy Casa Daily, no less, at Melbourne Town Hall. Yeah, that's right. We coincided that with uh, uh, a National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation national meeting in Melbourne. That's right, yeah. We thought, look, let's put on the big dance. So we went big. Um, and it was a was a good celebration. Um, this year, our celebrations are a little bit... More restrained, yeah. But we do have lots of great activities planned. Well, you know, we're in um, pressing economic times, aren't we? So we've got to uh, all be a bit uh, resourceful and a bit mindful of uh, where coin goes these days. How long have you been involved with the health service, and and what are some of your earliest recollections of it? I've been. I, I think I'm. I think I'm racking up nearly forty years. Yep. But not as a board member. Chairman for quite t- on the board for a long time. Chairman for quite a while. A um, couple of stints in different management roles and all that. More recently, seven or eight years as handling the men's unit. Um, and that was a tough gig, mm. uh, working with some of the guys in our community about dealing with men's issues. Um, and more recently, Ambassador, which yeah. is... Geez, what a title. Well, we're talking. I mean, that, that obviously means that your home is, a, is now a, a consulate and you get diplomatic community as a result. Absolutely. And I'll be, I'll be taking that home with me. I, that's, I, I hadn't thought of that, Daniel, and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased, mate. But, so when, when the authorities knock on the door, I'll say, you can't come in. Can't come in, no, but, exactly. But, and, but, and, of course, it's on Aboriginal land, which makes it doubly safe. Well, exactly, <laughs> if only that was um, the case across this great big wide brown land of ours. Uh, like uh, some some of the early memories are, I guess, um, ju- just the activity, the the hive of activity that Vars is the home away from home. Uh, particularly, it's, it's, it's you, a cultural hub, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You, like you, you mentioned, um, you mentioned Goethe Street, two two nine Goethe Street was our first very humble beginnings. You know, volunteers helping clean the place and get the place set up. No money, no money to do anything. Um, just committed, courageous people who wanted to make a difference. Up to well. Uh, to one three six Gertrude Street, which became Charcoal Lane later on. Lots of lots of memories of just you know, we would travel in just to be there. Yeah. Um, didn't have to be sick to visit. Yep. That's where the home away. 
but there's lots of good stories about VARs, lots of innovation. Um, you know, we always thought with the blinkers off, uh, lots of courage to make decisions and do things. Well, my my earliest recollection of uh, VARs was going to where Charcoal Lane now is to the dentist. My first trip to the dentist, and I was absolutely uh, terrified. Yep. But uh, I forget the name of the, of the dentist, but he was there for like 30 or so years. Well, can you Dr recall? Bill Roberts. That's the one. And he was... You know, beautiful, charming gentleman did did his best to keep me keep me at ease, despite um, my dad trying to spook me out on the way there. Um, uh, it's a story that goes back a long time. It's kind of like the birth of what we call Aboriginal community control. Now, um, tell us about some of the early pioneers um, that saw the service happen. So, people like Arnie Elmer Thorpe, Uncle Bruce McGuinness, and of course Arnie um, Edna Brown. Tell us about some of those people. Yeah, like. Um Arnie Elmer, of course, was our first administrator, um, you know, like, uh, and worked worked two jobs mm. to be there during the day, yeah. you know, looking after seven children, all my cousins, yeah, um, and just a pioneer of, of that commitment to community health. Um, of course, the, the role that Bruce played um, as the voluntary leader, he, Bruce was all, never worked for the organisation, but he... He was a board member and chairman for a long time. He was a, he was a very um, s- strong advocate, um, huge intellect, um, really articulate, and um, someone that you know drove you know advocacy in this city for Aboriginal people for, for quite a long time. Uh, Bruce's influence is legendary in terms it's it's timeless in terms of Aboriginal people running Aboriginal business. Yep. Um, you mentioned community control. Bruce is the architect of the of them principles and that philosophy. It's quite a simple philosophy. Some people call it black power. Black power to us is Aboriginal people running Aboriginal business. So we don't need non-Aboriginal people to be frightened of that concept. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, quite simple. It's, um, and it's all based on the rights of Aboriginal people. There are international covenants everywhere throughout the world. And all, all the people at early doors in VARS were doing was saying we need the right to express our... We need, we need to be able to express our rights. We have the right to control our own health destiny. We have the right for our community to run our own health service. You mentioned um, Edna. That's my nan, Edna yeah. Brown. Um, uh, like we're, going, we're, we're, we're going through all the VARS documents in storage and there's thousands of documents and we found the first membership... First membership um, role, and Nan was membership member number one, wow. and she was she was in, instrumental in um, unsung heroes behind the scenes type of people who who just uh, provided that balance and that 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 foresight with other elders that were around. Reg Blow was our first president. Jim Berg was an extraordinary board member. Um, these, these, these people are you know legendary names within the community. Arnie Jolene Briggs, yep. Arnie Margaret Briggs, Hillis Maris, there are Gary Foley later on. There are lots of people who are important to our organisation. They didn't do it alone. They worked together as a community and they, all, they had plenty of conversations. I've found minutes from 1973 and they're just fun to read. They're good to read. Some of the decisions were quite... Um, the, the boards are different now in terms of governance yeah. responsibility. They were making some operational decisions, but they also made strong decisions like uh, Nessie Scooter came down from Gippsland. She's um, a, uh, a legend down in that area. The, the, and Nessie asked Vars for $2,000 to employ a nurse so she could set up the central, uh, the, the Gippsland and East Gippsland Aboriginal Health Service. So Vars 
Uh, right, so it's a, you know things grew. You know, yep. The Aboriginal community controlled health sector, in Reflect. a way, sort of grew out of us in a yep. way. Yeah, um, there was a request from Shepparton community to send doctors up to Rumbalara. They were just they just formed their committee, so we, the board motion was to support Rumbalara in the setting up. So there's that type of we've got that type of history, one that we're proud of, but it was never about VARS running or owning the local community health services in rural Victoria. It was all about, we'll, we'll give you a little kickstart, yep. and then you're on your own and, and uh, for that local community to, to do it. That's one of the great legacies of ours. Must be, um, it must be amazing for you personally to go through those archives and basically, you know, in, in some ways, see your own history reflected in that, but also... Um, uh, the, the history of, of, of your forebears and where they were at, the, at that particular time and some of the decisions that we would consider, I'm guessing these days, as kind of straight up and down decisions. But then those decisions were revolutionary and they were brave and no one else was talking about this sort of stuff. Absolutely, mate. Yep, they've nailed it. Like, the, the, like organisations like VARS uh, were set up in spite of government. Yeah. And, um, and you know, we... We don't want to be fooled to thinking that there was universal support for Aboriginal people to run their own. There was nothing. Them. There was nothing there, but these people stuck to their guns. Um, they they had it. They had a plan. Had no money, um, but they they knew what was right yep. and what was right for us to own our own health journey. The health system was was uh, there was no equity there. Was we couldn't access it, so we had to find our own way. Yep. Now there's 28 Aboriginal health services in Victoria. There's 153 Aboriginal health services throughout the country. Really big, complex health organisations. But like Redfern, like VARS, like all the rest, very humble beginnings. I think one of the amazing things um, that, that I saw, and I, I think that the broader health sector saw, was during the, the, the depths of, of the pandemic and how proactive... VARS was, but also a lot of the other health services were in making sure that people were getting screened, getting their tests in the first instance, and finally, you know, getting um, um, you know, injected with the um, uh, what's the what's the word? COVID vaccine. COVID vaccine. Um, I, that, that was a level of organisation that I didn't really see anywhere else across the health system for quite a while, and I, I think it's fair to say that. The Aboriginal health sector really led the way in terms of how you organise community, not only in a um, primary health sense, but in a public health sense. And that's something that Aboriginal community health organisations have been really good at for a long time, and it's that public health aspect of health. You're absolutely right. Like, one of the great strengths in our community is our community. Yes. And VARS, VARS just taps into that. There, I mean... One of the great things about having a health service for 50 years is that we can rely on our community and our families to be health savvy. They mm. get it. Yep. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, sure, we're underdone and we have health issues, but we do know when, the, when, the, when COVID hit and the pandemic was looming, families, matriarchs and patriarchs organised. It was amazing. Um, and, they, they, and they took the lead in their own clans and their own groups. Yep. Um, so that's you know that's a difference than the, probably the rest the rest of the rest of our Melbourne community, um, but the other and VARS mobilised really quickly. Very quickly. got organised and um, you know got information out there and and all the tools like the masks and the vaccinations and even um, couriering, couriering um, medications to people where they were. So when we were yep. all in lockdown, uh, 
the little vase cars were going out in the streets and dropping yep. off medications to people that needed it at the yep. time. Incredible yep. stuff. And and the, the and now we know that the evidence speaks for itself. That that campaign was so successful, not only in Melbourne but throughout Victoria. Yes. That we had very very little COVID positives. Yep. I th- at one stage zero COVID deaths. And that's, that's extraordinary for the most marginalised, unhealthy and vulnerable people in, in Victoria where we, we were able to keep pandemic at bay and keep it away out of our families. Yeah, there's a, there's a PhD in it for someone if they want to write Absolutely. it. It is uh, 25 past seven. Uh, you're listening to The Mission. Uh, my name is Daniel. I'm speaking with Alan Brown, who's the ambassador for the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service on their 50th anniversary, uh, which is this year. Now, um, very humble beginnings... How many people do um, does pl- VARS employ now? Two hundred and eighty staff across five sites. Across five sites. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, so and like the big clinics in Nicholson Street that you mentioned, that's yep. the main. That's our hub. Yep. Uh, we've got uh, Plenty Road, Preston, Bell Street, with the mural on it. That's that. That's a that's a large place. We've got a satellite clinic in Epping. Just opening soon, a satellite clinic in St Albans. Oh, great! Which is mate, the Western suburbs has probably been. Growing. Yeah, it's growing. It's the biggest demographics that we know, um, and the satellite clinics are about putting clinics where people live. Yeah, I mean, if you live if you live in the outer suburbs of Melbourne, it takes forty fifty minutes to get into Victoria. We, we know that's not right. I'll we tell want- you what. I spent the first ten years of my life in um, Kialba, and a, and a pop up site. Um, a satellite site at St Albans would have been magnificent. Yeah, <laughs> and it's long overdue. Yeah, absolutely. But. Uh, so, so that'll be opening soon. It's just, just not far off. We've also got Bunjawara, which is a, a yeah. youth, a youth um, residential drug and alcohol rehabilitation program. I mean, th- this is what community control sort of does. It influences our decisions. The ice epidemic hit our families bad, like it was tough. People were upset. People didn't know what to do. They, they rallied around VARS and they said, we want to talk. They want to talk. They said, do something. So our response was... It's not a, a 25-bed youth and youth drug and alcohol uh, residential program down in Hastings in Bunjilwara. So at least we've got some type of opportunity for young people who were impacted by the scourge to be able for a response. That, that, that was a community direction and it was pleasing that we were able to to do something about that. Uh, Koori Maternity Services have long been a part of, um, you know, ACHOs across across the state. But one of the things that, um, again, I think was driven by the community was men's health and um, uh, men's mental health as well, the whole the whole person, um, because, we, you know, the community saw that as very much an area that was kind of undercooked. Uh, men weren't looking after themselves properly and they weren't looking after other people um, properly. And that's an area that VARS has put a lot of effort into to make sure that there are services getting to, to men in this city. Yeah, um, I mean, it's like our women's and children's unit was is 25 years old. Yep. But that, that's a priority. I mean, that was that was a no-brainer way back then. And it took us a while to get our skates on and to get organised organised around men's health. But you're right, it's about... Um, it's it's the, it's about that wraparound service that we need to be. I mean, Vars is talking wraparound service way be, way before it become you know the thing to do, um, and it's all about a guy coming in and to sort of talking about his health issues. But what what else is going on in your life? Mate? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like yeah, we'll, we'll patch you up. You know, we'll put that band aid on, 
But but you know, once we peel peel back some of the layers, how, how you going with things? What, what and sometimes it's the cultural stuff. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's about their place in family. Sometimes it's about knowing how to be. Um, how to make a contribution to family and community. It's kind of that opportunistic health delivery, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Once the person comes on the premises, you know, you ask yeah. them and check them out yeah, and yeah, see how yeah, they're going. Yeah, we call it the wraparound. I mean, it's got it's got social determinants of health, but we were doing that. I mean, some like I can remember way back in Kircher Street, um, the the Fitzroy Stars gym, we were, we were setting it up with Jock Austin and other people. And Jock and, and the poor, Vars people were talking about Participation in sport, physical activity, all the all the things now that people talk about, go for a walk and be healthy. Will Vaz was talking about that twenty five years ago. Yep. Uh, Thirty years ago, setting up football clubs and netball clubs and boxing and all that. So, so you know, just just the vision of people to be able to think, we this is what we need to do, and then the capacity to be able to, like it's the courage and the wherefore to get it done. Is extraordinary. You've just come. You've come today from um, from the Stars Footy Club, and you're telling me off fear that you reckon they'll go through the season undefeated. Yeah, that'd be a big call, <laughs> wouldn't it? I mean, I, I'm sure Fitzroy Stars playing in the Northern Footy League. They've been relegated to Div Three, so there, there is we've had to work hard because we, we take our football seriously. Yeah. Oh, and, it's, again, it's another cultural hub, isn't it? Absolutely, mate. And um, like the the, the the Fitzroy Stars Footy Club has got a proud issue. We've won premierships and we win a lot of games. Yeah. And for this current stock of young Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal men not to be winners, it irks them. And I'm glad I'm glad it irks them because I played in premierships. You've, you've seen them. You've come and watched them, and we enjoy them. So it's up to them to step up. That's their challenge. That's their challenge. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're good for it. Um, before I let you go. Um, we're also talk, talking off air about, um, you know, the political aspect of, of VARS and how I've always thought that the, the CEO role of VARS is the, is the most difficult role in um, Aboriginal affairs in this state, not only because of the complexity of services the, that are delivered, but the, the high demands of the community, quite rightly, but then, of course, dealing with um, uh, the politics in and out of the place and dealing with the various multiple multiple. Um, bureaucracies that you have to deal with on a day in, day out basis. It's a tough gig, isn't it? Ab- oh, mate, like the the, the the Mick Graham's our CEO, but Mick Graham grew up with Fars, so he gets the organisation really well. He's he's family connected. Uh, his uncle, his Bruce McGinnis is his uncle, you know, and um, so he understands the organisation, but it's easier said than done. You're yeah. right, 280 staff, he's got to manage. $20 million-plus budget over four sites. Um, but he's also, because of our, the very nature of our business and the very nature of the community, Mick's, Mick's got to be also, also be available to people that knock on his door. Yeah, and want to no, talk to there's me. no turn-off time. No, no, like, no I, I know that. Um, Mick and the other like senior people, they, they're always... Uh, but uh, We've been there, done that, um, got to be available. Yeah. But he's got, he's got to be able to be reachable by... Anybody in our community that wants to talk to me about health business, ranging from I didn't get picked up on time, what's going on, through to some very serious health issues. So trying to balance that. Um, there's also the political stuff. VARS is political. Yep. We have strong political positions on sovereignty. Uh, there, there is a paper that we wrote called Sovereignty, Land Rights and Health, which clearly articulates the connection between our sovereignty rights being challenged and impact on our health status. That's available on the website, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, I, 
we'll make it available. If it's not there, we'll get it <laughs> because we want people to read it. Yeah, it's, it shouldn't be in storage, and that, that defeats the purpose. We've done we've wrote we've wrote submissions to the Human Rights Commission, so we've done lots of political activity. So and that's 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 an area that we'll pick up during the fifty. There's some political stuff going on at the moment. The, Lots of it. There's the voice going on, the, the treaty the treaty forum to which I believe, I reckon Bars is encouraged by the treaty conversations. They've been really good. I, I'm, 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 I'm really impressed and somewhat amazed with how well the treaty process seems to be rolling out here in Victoria because yep. it's a complex thing um, that is right, you know, ripe for a lot of lateral violence to, to happen, but so far, so good. Everyone yeah. seems to be pushing in the, in the same direction. Yeah, I, I get that same sense, mate. I agree that where there seems to be some good positive... Um, and everybody puts the questions on the table and they're dealt with and they're answered in a... And it's, it takes time. There will be disagreements, but they've got a disagreement process being yep. set up. Yep. Um, there will be disputes, no doubt. But, but the process, I think, is going to be... Uh, and that... I mean, it's proud to be Victorian, and you know, it sounds like the Teddy Whitten we're sort pretty, of thing. We're, we're pretty good, but uh, but yeah, Gunich Mara, and yeah. but, but Yorta Yorta. Yeah, that's right, mate. So we come from good stock. Oh, you're not wrong. And, and, uh, and that's that's part of the we get it, and that's why the conversations will be good. I think. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your time. Um, I know you've been there and done that. We're talking about it being the hardest gig um, in in Aboriginal affairs, which probably means in the land. <laughs> um, but thank you for your commitment for such a long time. Thank you for your expertise, and thank you for coming in tonight. Uh, well, thank you very much. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're listening to The Mission on 102.73 Triple R FM. Um, now on to uh, tonight's uh, second guest. On this show, we've covered the high rates of youth incarceration in this state through campaigns like bail reform and, and raise the age, of course. But just because we're seeing glacial change in this state doesn't mean we're seeing the same change in other jurisdictions. In fact, many argue in some parts of the country uh, we are regressing on these matters. The Queensland government, propelled by public anger over youth crime, for instance, has announced a series of tough-on-crime reforms. The proposed laws, as announced, will uh, make bail breaches a crime for children, increase the maximum prison term for car thefts, allow police to arrest kids on suspicion that may, they may breach bail and make courts take into account during sentencing crimes that serious repeat offenders could hypothetically commit in the future. Now, the laws have caused concerns amongst advocates, uh, the Aboriginal community and our legal experts like our next guests. So on the line with us is the chair of the Queensland Law Society's Children's Law Committee, Damien Bartholomew. The Law Society is calling upon the state government, the Queensland state government, and opposition to consult with experts in youth justice to implement measures that will work to address youth crime. And I'm very pleased to say that Damien is on the line with us now. Damien, welcome to the mission. Thank you. Um, describe to us, the, for us here in Victoria, describe the political environment in Queensland now that has led to the announcement of these proposed laws. Oh, well, we've had some unfortunate and, and quite tragic incidents involving um, young offenders in Queensland that's given rise um, to particular, understandable um, particular community concerns mm-hmm. uh, and looking for some sort of response, but but we've unfortunately had a government response that appears to be uh, knee-jerk, 
uh, and not well evidenced, and we've seen a very uh, harsh and uh, punitive uh, bill put before Parliament uh, to make uh, the likelihood of incarceration for young people significantly higher. Does the um, bill have bipartisan support at this stage? Uh, look, I, I couldn't answer uh, uh, that question, but it does seem to have support really from both, par- both parties. Uh, both major parties in Queensland seem to be asking for um, certainly the breach of bail offence. Um, in fact, there seems to be the uh, opposition in, in Queensland, who's the LNP, seem to be asking for detention to be removed um, as a last resort for children as part of a, a fundamental of our legislation. Right, and so the the outcry, has, as, you, as you mentioned, has been you know quite enormous. It comes on the back of 150,000 signatures, I understand, which uh, called for the reintroduction of that that those breach of bail laws as an offence. Um, that has been one of the, the the key parts of this discussion that has sort of like captured the media's imagination and and, and the public's, you know, um, I guess outrage. Yes, it's difficult to, um, for someone who works in the area to be able, and for the society really to uh, have an understanding of, of what the where the enthusiasm is for breach of bail offence, because we had previously been an offence under the previous government. Uh, so under the previous LNP government, breach of bail was made an offence. Uh, it was shown not to be an effective deterrent uh, for young people. Um, in relation to offending, um, it was removed by this government based on the evidence. Uh, it appears that it, it somehow uh, has captured the, the public imagination and, and unfortunately seems to have been sold to uh, the general public as being an answer to uh, youth offending. But unfortunately, there is no evidence that would suggest that it would be an effective measure. So what are, I mean, we've we've seen that here in Victoria. We've seen that um, you know youth detention in, in Victoria because of uh, bail breaches and um, the incarceration of uh, women in particular, Aboriginal women in, in this state, um, has exploded as a result of bail laws that um, need reforming. Um, what are the potential imp- implications of these laws in, in the Queensland setting? The, the tragedy that already exists within Queensland um, is that we already have uh, have had up to 100 young people being held in our watch houses because our detention centres are full. Um, that adults who are then... Uh, young people who are then being held in facilities with uh, adults in watch houses, so in the same facility. They're in uh, facilities that are not designed for young people and uh, facilities that don't offer uh, at least any of the safeguards that are required for young people being held in youth detention centres. There's also a greater likelihood that young people are going to be um, criminalised because of non-criminalised behaviour, non-criminal behaviour, um, by breaching their bar, for example, by being out after a curfew. And quite, it's important to understand the context of young people's bail conditions and bail and not keeping to those conditions are often, um, by virtue of their age and immaturity and a lack of resources, often even beyond their control uh, because they don't have the same uh, access to transport or they may not have control over their um, accommodation uh, options because they're often um, at the... Uh, at the discretion of adults who often um, make those decisions about where they can or can't stay. 
So even even before these laws introduced, uh, Queensland, as, as as it stands, has more children in detention than any other state or territory. And That's right. Seventy percent of those children behind bars are Indigenous already. Um, the, we, we're hearing from people like um, uh, Debbie Kilroy, who is a, um, a strong and passionate um, advocate um, for, for justice issues um, across the spectrum. She, she has said um, via Twitter that this is going to explode the numbers in watch houses. It's going to explode the numbers in youth prisons, all to justify uh, the Queensland government's policy decision to build two new youth prisons prisons. Um, these numbers are quite extraordinary and, and what we're hearing from um, advocates and, and experts across the place is these numbers are going to explode if these if these laws are introduced. Do, do, do you agree with that? It's certainly difficult to think that the numbers uh, w- would not increase. Yep. Uh, but, but Daniel, and while that is of particular concern and certainly um, I, I commend uh, the work that Debbie Kilroy does and we are very honoured to have her as a member of our uh, committee uh, in the on the Children's, Court, uh, Children's Law Committee um, with the Queensland Law Society. Uh, but of particular concern is that this is being marketed um, by the government and indeed by the um, opposition as well as, as something that is keeping the community safer. Um, and unfortunately, uh, what we've seen, indeed, we had a decision of uh, Children's Court of Queensland being made by a judge in Cairns that was released this week, that clear, having reviewed um, the detention of the 13 and 14-year-old young person um, who was in the care of child safety, looking at that um, period of detention, uh, said that there is no evidence that deter- the detention served uh, any rehabilitative effect. And that is the great concern, is that there is, this is being marketed to the community as a measure of community safety, where unfortunately um, detaining these young people and increasing the numbers of detention is in fact uh, Less like, certainly there is no evidence that it's likely to uh, increase community safety. Indeed, the finding in that uh, case by the judge who reviewed that young person's uh, detention was it was likely to have caused significant harm. And, and it's kind of typical of uh, state governments across the country in terms of where their investment goes in terms of, um, uh, uh, I guess, uh, incarceration as opposed to sort of preventative programs, especially tailored around um, our youth. Uh, are there programs that uh, the Queensland government is funding that looks at the, the prevention end of the spectrum instead of the detention end? I would, I, I would absolutely acknowledge that the Queensland government does have some of those programs, and what um, we've heard, even in recent days, uh, as evidence has been taken in relation to uh, submissions have been taken in relation to this bill before Parliament, we've heard uh, youth, the youth justice workers themselves say that their recent uh, intensive case management program has shown to be highly successful, uh, and. Uh, we're also aware that we also have had a report done into the electronic monitoring devices that uh, can be applied to children, which identifies that uh, the intensive bail programs that have been put into place by the government have shown to also be um, very effective. So we have got programs that do that are effective and have proven to be effective. Uh, some of them are in trial. Most of those are in trial stage, uh, and but many of them have shown to be very successful. What um, is what has been identified is that they perhaps need more resources to be able to be expanded um, across the board. 
and they're things that the, that the law society would definitely promote uh, and would see as being um, very being very sensible um, provisions. But what they're concerned about, what we are concerned about, is that uh, you've then got the counteractive effect of having young people being placed in detention, which we know is not evidenced uh, to show to work. It is uh, 8 to 8. I'm speaking with uh, Damien Bartholomew, who is the chair of the Queensland Law Society's Children's Law Committee. And we're talking about um, some laws that the Queensland Government are proposing to introduce. It's actually before Parliament as we speak that will, um, you know, make bail breaches for a crime for children, amongst um, other things. Um, before I let you go, uh, Damien, I guess the the complexity of this issue, I guess politically and emotionally, is hearing from um, the victims of crime who have uh, suffered over, you know, the over previous um, recent years um, as a result of uh, what the media is determining um, a youth crime wave, um, their voices need to be heard as well. So it's a, it's, it's a fine balancing act, but it would seem um, from, what you're, from your perspective, Damien, that uh, the, the Queensland government has got that balance wrong. And you're absolutely right, uh, Daniel. It is a, a delicate and sometimes difficult uh, decision to to make but what but given the complexity and the importance of the lives of children what is of particular concern uh, in relation to this bill is that it has had an extraordinarily short time frame it um, allows for breaches of our human rights act it is the first piece of legislation uh, to come to, in, into to be presented to parliament specifically um, acknowledging that it is non-compliant with our um, human rights obligations under our Human Rights Act, uh, and that there there was a 60-hour turnaround from the time of its introduction for the time for the community uh, to comment and to make submission, uh, so that there has been very little consultation about this very complex area that obviously does need to have input by a variety uh, of experts and professionals with a lot of experience and indeed from a lot of communities as well and and people just have not had the time uh, to be able to properly consider the uh, how to do this because it is something that is quite difficult but what I could also say is that the Queensland Law Society is very concerned about uh, the rights of victims and indeed it's very important that uh, those rights are properly respected but introducing uh, provisions that aren't evidence-based and aren't proven to be um, effective, then that's not keeping the community any safer and not and not um, keeping those victims any safer. And um, the, the, the the Queensland Premier NSA, um, Anastasia Palaszczuk has readily admitted that those these laws breach the um, the, the the government's own human rights laws. So um, it seems like a, a massive um, uh, I won't say knee jerk reaction, but a, 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 a disproportionate reaction to to the problem. One that you know, like you said, has been rushed through without consultation. Um, Damien, it'd be great to keep in contact with you to, to keep abreast of these issues as they keep um, uh, emerging in, in your state. Um, but for, for the time being, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for your interest. Thank you, Daniel. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you to Alan Brown for his commitment. Thank you to Damien Bartholomew for giving us an update on what's going down in Queensland. Um, but until next week, stay safe, stay strong and stay listening. Ta-da. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. 
Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.